Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Britflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Nick Holt. Hello, Nick. Hello, Stuart. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Now, what, have we, what film have we come on to talk about today? Uh, One Night in Istanbul, uh, which was a hit play up here in Liverpool and in Ireland, and uh, then we adapted it to make a movie. So, although that's, it's a daft question from, from a Liverpool fan asking a Liverpool fan, for those people that live outside that football bubble... What's One Night in Istanbul about? It's about that big final in 2005 uh, when Liverpool were 3-0 down in the European Cup final, uh, Champions League final, whatever you want to call it. And I think everybody had written it off, including myself. I thought AC Milan were going to go on to score six. Uh, And in 2005, Liverpool crazily uh, got themselves back to 3-3, forced extra time and then won on penalties. And it was... uh, it was basically a piece of theatre. It wasn't like a football match. No, it wasn't. It was uh, quite remarkable. Now, an even dafter question, but but also I think it, it's it's rooted in kind of uh, from from like a, one writer to another. It's like what what compelled you to try and write a fictional story around such an iconic, legendary event, knowing that obviously football fans know what they felt about that. Football fans who were kind of close to it know what they felt about it, and their eyes would have been on how you capture that in fiction. I would never write about football, a football game as such. I'd never write about footballers who I find quite boring, actually, in the majority of them anyway. Uh, I'm not interested in celebrity. And it was always about the supporters for me. So I think fans of any other football team should get this story because it's about the lengths that football fans will go to. I mean, to get to a game or get to a big final... And football is, it's just out of the stratosphere. It's just a very, very strange game because, I mean, the the amount of money footballers are paid and the fanaticism that fans show towards the team, uh, it was always the thing about what what supporters and what fans are like for me that always interested me. So I was right again and again and again about what football supporters are like and what they will do to, and and sports fans, any sports fans, it could be rugby fans, you know, as long as they're fanatical, boxing fans, but... It's mainly football fans and what they will do to get to a game, how their lives, you know, always seem to revolve around football on a fixture list. I've been one of those people mm-hmm. uh, until I woke up about 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, and it's just all about the people outside. So Istanbul was a fantastic 
piece of theatre and I thought to myself what better game to write about than why these supporters needed to get to that game and then what happens to them when that game takes place. Okay. Now it's it, it was written as a stage play. What 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 made you choose that first? What was what was the was was it was it a stage play in your mind when you started, or did it become a stage play? No, it's usually my bread and butter. I mean, I actually find writing films a lot easier than writing stage plays. Stage plays are harder, but it, it, it's that sort of discipline what what I love. I, you know, when you have to just find out what you can do to keep it on one place on a stage. I mean, once you, you're allowed the luxury of, of film and being able to go anywhere, it's it's liberating for, for anybody who's written for stage. It's just liberating. I mean, you, you write a play. And then a minute I'm thinking I'm writing a film one night in Istanbul. It's just like, well, you know, you feel like you can go all over the place, literally. And it's just about using a lot less dialogue. But uh, to, to start out with a play, the play idea was was always in my mind. And I knew that it would, it would do well in Liverpool and Ireland if it was written right. Mm. So we written out an old comedy. And we based it around uh, what happens to these supporters and how they get to the game and how their lack of money... Uh, brings them to having to sell Adolf Hitler's cufflinks, which was actually all based on a true story. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when when Liverpool played <coughs> in 1981 against Bayern Munich in the semi-final of the European Cup, yeah, a guy over there, a Liverpool fan uh, who everybody sort of knew locally, he 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 had no money for for beer, and he sort of come across into the beer keller there, and he said, you know. I need some money to to get some beer, and so somebody sent him on a mission. Said, "We'll come back with Adolf Hitler's cufflinks from that museum where we've all just been, and uh, we'll buy you beer all day." And uh, well, there you go. The ingenuity of football fans. He went over. He come back with Adolf Hitler's cufflinks. People checked out. They were gone. He took them. I think they were bought for like 200 German marks or francs or whatever that money was then. And uh, he had his beer money and his, his fare all the way home. Then it, became, it went down in legend then because there was a couple of hundred people in that beer keller about what happened to Adolf Hitler's cufflinks. So I brought the story forward and uh, said that our two guys in this film had them under the uh, under the floorboards. Now, I mean, you've, you in 2004 you wrote the book The Boys from the Merseys. Obviously, like you say, you you were someone that travelled with Liverpool mm-hmm. and as, a, as obviously as a, an obsessive football fan for, for years. What what were you drawing on from your own? What else? I mean, that's there's one story you told us there. What from a personal point of view? What were you drawing on from yourself in terms of this story? Everything uh, myself, uh, probably mainly one of the Tommy character in the film and in the play. Lots drawn from the way I lived. I mean, there's thousands of football fans all around the country like me who are like me. I always put it down to an addiction. It was an addiction for me. I mean, I just used to wait for every, like, July or whenever the fixture list would come out. And then my whole life and my job and everything I used to do would be based around that. I mean, I've lost so many jobs. I've probably lost about eight or nine jobs uh, through following football. Uh, girlfriends probably couldn't, couldn't put up with me when I was younger. It was an addiction where some people were addicted to gambling, addicted to, I don't know, sex, drugs, whatever you want to call it. My addiction was football, so I mean, it's a probably a mild addiction compared to the others, but it did make me spend all my money. It did take me all over the place, and uh, lots of the characters within the film and lots of the, the characters I always put within plays and stuff are all people I've met at football, whether the Liverpool fans, West Ham fans, Leeds fans, I don't know, Manchester City fans. I've met supporters all over the place, and I've been to you know about four or five World Cup tournaments. And it's all based around supporters, all the characters, and everything I, I usually do is based around people I've known at football. 
Now, I mean, you said before that that, that, that that stage play writing is your kind of bread and butter, sort of what you like, what you like doing. Um, <clears throat> where does that come from? I mean, I mean, you use someone that, that I, I seem to remember on Liverpool TV. You were talking about there was sort of a collective of kind of Liverpool fans who started to get together and do put on plays and stuff. Was it, was that something you were part of? Uh, no, not really. I was never really part of of any sort of like scene or click or number of people. Uh, probably the only person I ever wrote with when I was younger and had a little talk with was maybe Dave Kirby. Okay. Or uh, we sort of went off in our own little directions. We just sort of teamed up a little bit now to talk talk about doing a, a new project. But we wrote a play called Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels, and there was a Ro- the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool was about to close down. So it, it, it's gone down now here locally as the play that kept the theatre open mm. and it became the most successful play in Liverpool for five years running where it was sort of sold out for six weeks. So we, we, we were watched by about 160,000 people in the end Jeez. and it's become like a, a real big play. We often thought, thought about putting that into a film but the actual playwriting, Stuart, was a lot of it was to do with wherever I travelled, watching football, I would often like carry plays and stuff with me or I would try and take in a play and people used to think I was mad and it's not your average football fan's kind of thing to do and they used to say to me, where, where are you off to? Or what are you, what are you reading that play for? And I, I just used to think, you know, however you think about this, I used to think I could do better. I used to just look at a lot of plays and think, you know, I, I was never really Shakespearean and I just thought I'd like to write stuff that I, I thought could put bums on seats and so I got into it and that was it. And, and how did uh, One Night in Istanbul, the stage play then, Start to morph into the film. Where, what was the early be- what were the early beginnings of that, and how did it get momentum? Well, a guy called James Marklands, whose father uh, directed Return of the Jedi. Oh, uh, his name is Richard Marklands. He, he approached me, uh, and he was a big Liverpool fan, and he said to me, "Have you thought about doing this as a film?" And I said to him, "Well, I have actually." And he said, "Well, I'd love to be the director." So we sort of sat down and we started to adapt the script, and uh, we talked it through, and. I think, although Jim is mentioned as, Jim is the director of the film, I'd like to think that it helped him a lot, you know, because I was on scene and I was on set all the time. Mm. I went to Istanbul to film for five weeks, and Jim helped me just as much with the writing too. So it was uh, it was very much that kind of cooperative process and a collaboration. And we sat, sat down, and four years later, here we are, the film's come out. If somebody had told me, and I have to be really honest with you, that it was going to take me four years, <laughs> uh, I would I would have said no, Stuart, and that's the truth. <laughs> I didn't realise, and other people have said to me now, you know, your average film can take seven years, a British independent movie, or anything bigger than that, and, and then I'd heard it, and I thought, well, that's a load of nonsense, and I actually thought we'd make the film in one year, so I went at it in all naivety, and sort of just ran at it full on, head on. We started to raise money, and then you come up against all the barriers of the raising the money, and all the different, like, things you, you have to climb over the barriers and offences but it starts out with me and Jim saying yeah let's make this into a film and, and me just naively thinking yeah I'm going to make a movie it's a double let's do it and did you I mean like if you said you know you, you you sort of thought you started to learn about stage plays by reading them did you did you then start reading screenplays to get a sense of how they were or did you just sort of look at it and think how do I make this into a film no, same, exactly the same, you're right. I, I, I'm a great believer. I mean, I remember, remember reading the Beatles saying that, though they did everything, everything had been done before them even, and most tunes had been written, and they, they took a lot of stuff from old rock and roll and blues and stuff, 
And, I, I, you know, as far back as 30, 40 years ago, the Beatles, everything had been done. Everything now, it's been done. It's been done to death. You, you, all you, if a young aspiring writer who wants to write films or write plays, all he needs to do, he doesn't have to go off to no school. He just has to have to be really, really ambitious. He has to mean it. You can't, like, fiddle about with it. You've got to mean it full on. And all you need to do is go and pick up some stage plays or screen plays, watch a few movies, watch a few films, uh, and, and go to the theatre and watch a few plays, and then make your attempt. And I think that one of the best things you can actually do is use a, your favourite play or your favourite film as a template, and then put your own dialogue and your own words and directions in. And, you know, you go at it and you go at it and go at it. And what I, I did was I literally put my head down for about two years, and I've wrote about ten scripts, but they're all just lying there. So far, I think five of them have been made. Mm. So I've got sort of a backlog of scripts, and they're not all fully written, but the forms and the ideas are there. And if somebody comes to me now and says to me, I'd like you to write this, then I'd, put, I'd still keep it on the back there and do something new. But I think the ideal way for a new writer to get really involved... I did go to night school, by the way, I must say, for two years at John Moore's University. Mm. Uh, I packed it in after about eight months. I, didn't, I, I really didn't think I needed to do it. And the people in the class told me that. They just said, you're too ambitious, you're chomping at the bit, why don't you just go off and do it? And I thought, Sodger, yeah, I will. So I had a girl uh, who was there who was writing for the un a union magazine in London called Pauline Bean, and she said to me, I said to her, I envied her for her degree, and she turned around to me, she said, no, I envy you for your life experience. She said, if anybody's going to be a writer in the class, it'll be you, so go off and do it. And I looked at Pauline and thought, God, that, that's liberating, that's fantastic. She said that, so uh, my hat's off to Pauline for telling me I didn't need a degree, I just needed to write. It is one of, it is one of the great ironies of this modern world where sort of, youth is rewarded left, right and centre, that actually as a writer, the older you get, the better you should be because you've lived longer. <laughs> it, it should be that. The, the only thing is you've got to be careful that you don't lose your ambition and use your fire. Uh, lose your fire. And I think, you know, my fire and ambition is, is probably equivalent, if not bigger and more, than when I was maybe 21. I actually do feel like I've been reborn again because, mm. I mean, I went off, I'm 50 now, and I went off and did jobs for 20 years that I absolutely despised, I have to be honest and say. The, the jobs I had, there was no like of them. I had, I probably had 20 jobs over a 20 odd year period that I couldn't stand doing, and I always wanted to do this. So I mean, I would rather be skint doing this or be earning a living doing this than be wealthy and doing a job I didn't like. Because I mean, you know, isn't life isn't life supposed to be about bettering yourself and educating yourself and just becoming a better person? So I think when you're older, you should be better at it. But I think a lot of older people lose their fire. Yeah, no, no, no sure, sure. But, so in terms of the, the job of turning it from a stage play to a screenplay, what, was, what were the main challenges for you as a writer? I mean, how much, of the how much of the story changes? I mean, you said at the beginning there that the main difference and the reason why some, some, somehow you found it a little easier was it's less dialogue and, and, and such like. So what did that mean? Matt, how did that affect the structure of the screenplay versus the structure of the stage play? It affected me massively because I just started to realise all the way along the process, and I'd written a couple of screenplays before One Night in Istanbul, mm. but I started to look at it and think, you just need to talk a lot less here. I mean, when you're on stage, you literally have got to give everybody the story, well, here we are in Ireland, and this is the potato famine of 1850 or 40s or whatever, and mm. you know, you've got to sort of let everybody know where the stage is supposed to be. So I just started taking it down to less dialogue, less dialogue. And I, just, I didn't find it harder. I just found it easier and liberating. The only thing is I was still putting too much dialogue in. 
So when I went to uh, Istanbul and we, we were there for five weeks, I had an actor, Steve Waddington, this is just an instance. Mm. He sat me down one day in a hotel where we stay in the middle of Istanbul. And we were always holed up in traffic jams every day because that city is it's a fantastic place, but it's crazy. And it had taken us an hour to get to the studios or film locations. And he said, you see this scene here, which ran over like three and a half pages. He, he said, I reckon you can take it down to about a page or so. And we sat down in the bedroom and we whacked it out in about an hour. Now, that's a learning experience for someone with theatre because I often used to think that, well, when you, you're making a film, you, it goes off. The script goes off and the actors learn that and then that's usually what goes on camera with a few adjustments and a few ad-libs. Mm. But we literally changed the whole scene and took it down from three, three and a half pages to about a page and he said, no, you just need the camera there, camera there. And just speaking to him, he doesn't realise that that moment in the hotel in Istanbul, it was like the, the, the bulb coming on. So I literally ran back that day. I didn't go on set that day. And I read through the script and I come back with a revised script, which was about five pages, four or five pages shorter. So Steve Waddington, the actor who plays Tommy Kelly in this, has got a great, you know, I can thank him greatly for that. Steve's a writer himself. But it's mainly that, Stuart. It's knowing that thing that camera does the work, don't talk, you don't have to speak. And now... I'd absolutely love to write a film with hardly any dialogue in at all. It's interesting how um, how receptive you are to um, to feedback and how you see that as being a chance to make the work better as opposed to what I've, I've found sometimes with writers I've met, not necessarily writers I've interviewed, but mm. is that you find people who are starting out as writing, they get very protective of their work and don't see that sometimes the feedback they're getting is there to help them make it better. How do you keep... How, how do you keep open to what people are saying and not take it personally? Yeah, uh, that's also a learning process. I mean, because I've worked on a number of things, I mean, I've, I've probably produced and written about six plays now, and I, yeah. I, I think you just have to learn that it's a, it, they're all team games. Making a film, probably even more so than stage, it's an absolute team game. If you can't open yourself up and you're very closeted or very protective and overbearing about your writing, I think a lot of people don't want to work with you unless you're some kind of genius. And you know, I, I don't think there's there's a lot of writers out there who might tell people that they're geniuses. But I mean, I've seen films and seen stuff written by people who proclaim to be geniuses that are absolute toss, they're a load of crap. But I mean, you, you look at a lot of the stuff that's coming out of Hollywood and massive budgets and stuff, and we're forever just watching loads and loads of crap films. So there's lots and lots of crap just getting churned out. It's just like this. The people who are talented and who are talented, the one thing I would always say is open yourself up and listen to people because what a writer can often do, he spends a lot of time alone. Writers do spend a lot of time alone. As soon as I go off this phone, I'll be alone for the next six or seven hours while I'll be writing. It's being able to eventually come out of that bubble and open yourself up and listen to everybody else. And It was interesting what you just said because the script supervisor on set in Istanbul was a girl called Roxanne Cuenca, yeah. Uh, she had like a, a Spanish name. Uh, she's an Asian. Uh, she, she, she's an Asian-looking girl. Lovely, lovely girl. Roxanne said to me one day when we were on set in Istanbul. She said, "Nikki, the writer doesn't usually come on set, and they're usually a pain in the butt." She went, "We're so glad that we've had you on on set here because you're open to to all suggestions and you're ready to change scenes and sets at a drop of a hat." She went, "You need to be on stay on scene." with most of the things you write, if you're always going to have that uh, 
that way about, you know, I thought to myself, well, there you go. But listen, when I was younger, I was the same. I think a lot of writers start off that way. Oh, artistic control, and this is the way the story has to be. But look, if you want to get your stuff made and you want to learn, you've got to open yourself up because stage, theatre, film, they're all team games. They are team games. You can't make a film by yourself. You can't make a stage play by yourself. Can you give us an example of, of where that, that involvement on set and feedback from the people working on the film change certain aspects of a scene or... Well, uh, yeah, an example of that is with Steve Waddington, what I told you, where we went off and rewrote a scene yeah. in the bedroom, and that was on the morning. Uh, also, that, that's a perfect example, but also I was in the uh, studios once, uh, which was owned by a company called Karma Films, and it... Well, hello? Hello, yeah. Yeah, I thought, thought it went off then. The company Karma Films, they'd made uh, the James Bond film, and they'd just made Taken 2, the Liam Neeson film. Yeah. So... Uh, I was off on set one day and we were making this scene where Tommy, the main character, he, he, he's been drugged and he doesn't know whether to go to a girl who's drugged him or go to the European Cup. It's like a dream sequence. Hmm. And the sort of the director and the DOP sort of made the scene a lot different than I'd envisioned. Uh, I had seen it and envisioned it anyway. And it, the scene was absolutely fantastic. It was one of the best scenes in the whole film. It actually got dropped, the scene, which killed me in a way. It's, sorry, it's still in there, but it's all changed because the girl in Turkey who drugs him, her name's Layla, and when he doesn't know where to go to her and dive on her kind of thing or dive on the European Cup in this dream, we had Layla, the song by Eric Clapton, and then once we found out that the song was 100 grand, <laughs> it, had, yeah, it had to be dropped from the budget, but they shot the scene so perfect that day with that soundtrack. It blew me away. I was watching this Tommy guy and this real sexy Turkish girl uh, who we had, uh, an actress over there, she's very well known over there in Turkey. We had the two of them sort of coming together and singing the Champions League music. <laughs> and it was like an imaginary football crowd in the back. So if you try and picture it, there was the European Cup with ribbons on one side and this scantily clad girl on the other. And Tommy's drawn between the two and he keeps running to the two with the song uh, by Eric Clapton and comes in Layla. And they, they filmed it exactly how they saw it. I put the idea down, but it wasn't how I, I did see it. And when I looked at what they did, I went, wow, that's fantastic. It was, it was such a great scene. And, you know, if I could ever show anybody uh, that, that scene that's been cut, well, the song's been cut. We've still got the scene in there, but it's not as, it's not as great with the music. It's not as powerful because everybody knows that song. Mm. And that's a perfect example of being willing to collaborate and let, let your idea that you had in your mind just let go of it and say, no, hang on a minute. It's been big enough to say, this is better. If you actually think something is not as good and it's worse or it's suffered, then you have to stand up for, and say that too. But if there's a fine line, I think you're often best to let it go and get on with the film. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. What do you think of the, the, the differences between the collaborative experience of putting on a stage play versus a film? What, what were your... Uh, writer's got a lot more control in a, in a play because... There's so many people involved in a film, so many actors, cameramen, crew, so many different tentacles, executive producers, investors. Uh, it's, it, it's got so many tentacles of film 
that often, you know, well, for instance, I, I wasn't really going to go to Istanbul for the five weeks. Okay. So if I wouldn't have been there, you I mean, a lot of the things that I, I was determined to keep in the film may have been lost. And it was because I knew football so much. Yeah. And, it's, you know, there's sort of little bits of things around Hillsborough and Heysel and Liverpool and Europe and stuff that people on the film were not sort of, you know, were not in the know about that. It was really good I was there. And it said to me, than anything from here on in. Any film I'm ever involved in, I'll want to be there. But with a play, it's just usually you and a director, he goes in, and all he'll do is you can sit with him, and I usually do anyway. Uh, I sit with him most days, nearly every day. Uh, I, I could probably, I wouldn't have a problem directing a stage play now. I don't actually think I'd have a big problem directing a film. But I think the investors might be looking at me different and thinking, no, sod you, we don't want no some learner bloody director on set here. We'd rather have it. But I'd love to probably direct a film with a director or be a co-director as such. Yeah. But with a play, I think uh, you have a lot more say and the, the director's often turning to you and saying, what do you mean by this here? What do you mean by that there? And you know, although stuff can change in a play, a play is often all, a lot more about the writer than a film is. So um, when, when can people, when and how can people see the film? It's on uh, selected audience now. It's on uh, in Liverpool, Switch Island, Liverpool One. I think it's on in Glasgow, London, Birmingham, Dublin, Belfast. I think it's on about 15 audience, and it depends on how the sales of it go, then it'll be extended or it'll go bigger. But I, I think at the moment it, it's just that. Uh, you just check the audience online, and if, if you can't get to an audience near you, then you have to wait to see if it goes onto more cinemas and then probably go on to maybe Netflix and DVD release around Christmas time, I would imagine. So it's, it, you, 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 it'll be available widely as a DVD or Blu-ray and stuff come... Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's got to be, and I mean, the, the amount of football fans around the world, it's got to be readily available for them. And I mean, I know, for instance, because we filmed in Istanbul, and it's called One Night in Istanbul, and there's a hell of a lot of people in Turkey who are asking about the film, and... You know, shocked by the amount of like Liverpool supporters who live in Turkey. So, not just Liverpool supporters, but football supporters and Galatasaray supporters and Besiktas supporters and uh, all those teams. The film, more than anything for me, Stuart, it's it's about football fans. It's not about Liverpool. It's about what Liverpool. It's about what football fans are like. It's about the twelfth man. The film really could have been called the twelfth man. Well, I mean, I suppose famously, isn't it? The the, the, the you know the, the players heard. The Liverpool fans singing "You'll Never Walk Alone" at half time, thinking, "The hell's up with them?" <laughs> well, look, I remember reading Ancelotti, AC Milan's manager, and he said that wasn't that football game didn't matter. It didn't. AC Milan at the time had the best football team in the world: Shevchenko, Kaka, got the players they had, uh, Pirlo, it was endless. Maldini, they should have walked over Liverpool, and they almost did. Uh, but Mal- Ancelotti turned around and said, "That game, it didn't. We could have played all night. We weren't going to win." He said it. You know, he must maybe he's a religious man, but he said it's something from above or something from beyond. He said because that game is just so strange. It was so weird that the way Liverpool eventually won it. That uh, they were set to win it. They were, it was made for them to win that game. So Ancelotti said that, uh, and I think uh, for me, and I'll argue anyone blue in the face about it, the supporters won the game. The supporters didn't give up. A lot of people went to give up and tried to give up, and I, I think. You know, they opened the windows, didn't they? They heard them singing, you'll never walk alone at half-time, 3 nil down. But they were sort of cheering them on and cheering them on. And because there was maybe 50,000 of them over there in Istanbul, and they, they outnumbered the Milan fans, I don't know, maybe 4-1 to one or something, I just think it, 
they were sucking the ball in the net. They were just crying out for a goal. I mean, I was there, and I was all I was thinking was, just give me one goal. Now that's where football fans are nuts. You know, they're crazy. It's not even about winning when you're three 0 down. You're thinking, I've come this far. Give me one goal, and we'll all dance and we'll sing. Mm. So I'm standing there waiting for one goal, and one goal goes in, another goal goes in, and they scored like three goals in five or six minutes. So. It was the fans for me. Uh, the fans won that game. The f- I've seen the fans win other games. I mean, supporters can win games. It, it, it's a fact. And, uh, yeah, that film, One Night in Istanbul, it really, in, in a such, it could be called The Twelfth Man. Go on, sorry, I'm just going to say, uh, you know, I hope if anybody listens to it, that it, it encourages them to go off and make a film about their own football team or their own, their own way of supporting and what it's been for them. But the one thing I would never do, I would never go down the Escape to Victory route, although I know it's been a very successful film, I would never try and film stuff that's about the game that's actually on the pitch. I mean, to actually film footballers and what they do. It, that doesn't work for me. It's what people in and around the stadiums and outside the stadiums, it's what those normal people do and what they're about. That's, that's stuff that counts and I think is really interesting. Well, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it's what, it's what the, the sort of wall-to-wall live coverage of games seems to overlook. I mean, they, 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 they flirt with it in the beginning of games and stuff, but it, if anything happens that they don't like, they're not interested, mm-hmm. whereas that's what the fans would be talking about. Exactly. I don't, that's mean, it, yeah. I don't mean fighting then, I just mean, you know, might, so might, might have a silly banner up or something that's not necessarily... Um... Well, that's it. That's, that's what makes it all, uh, of course. You know, if it was just about the, the 11 on to 11 on the football pitch, how many games do we see per year that are actually fantastic? I don't know, a couple. A few. <laughs> the one last night wasn't fantastic, was it? Exactly, neither was the one the week before. But what I'm saying is, you know, it's a strange game, like football in England and in other countries. It goes above and beyond. It's, you know, they, they get followed fanatically. And even though they can channel some poor entertainment, people are there week in, week out. Well, my advice is to anybody who's an aspiring writer, filmmaker, even stage writer, whatever you, you want to call it, it is to, to write about the people, write about the people involved. Uh, I wouldn't really write about the sports people or the footballers because half the time, I mean, you write about them, they wouldn't even turn up to the film or to the stage anyway, or to the play anyway, so they're too busy with their own little lifestyles. So it's all about the people for me. It's always about the people. The, people's, the people is where it's interesting. The banners, the clothes, the, you know, the mannerisms, the way of travel, how you get the money, uh, what your wife's like about it, what your kids are like. I mean, what you're like when you're watching the telly, do you throw milk bottles at the TV? Is your week crap when your team get beat? Is your you know is your life fantastic when your team win? It's all about people, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. And one last thing, actually. Um, do what? What? what I, I, I forgot to ask you this question. Um, everyone that comes on the show, and I probably should have prepared you for this. So give yourself time to think if you need it. Um, if I mean, it I'm trying to think if it be a if it be a football related film, it doesn't have to be. What what we like to do is get recommendations of. British films that, that, that the uh, the guest thinks is maybe underrated and deserves a bit more kudos that you can recommend mm-hmm. to the listener. So, is there any any British film that you that you really feel deserves a bit more attention than it gets? Uh, well, it probably it probably does get attention, I suppose. But I, I, if I have a list of three, I probably I absolutely love Quadrophenia. I still think it's a fantastic film about like British culture. Mm. If I could make a movie myself in my lifetime, my whole lifetime, if I made Quadrophenia, I'd go to to meet Coffin Happy. Uh, Quadrophenia is fantastic, but is it underrated? I don't know. I, I, I love it. I love that what is film it about so much. Quadrophenia, like sorry. 
What is it about Quadrophenia that, make, that makes you feel that strongly about it? It's about people. Right. It's about people, it's about culture, it's about like normal, ordinary, everyday working class people who create this culture for themselves and sort of a little bit outside society, which often like crazy football fans are anyway, because they're living in their football bubble. But I mean, Quadrophenia, it's like people just living in that music bubble, the clothes, the fashion, the bikes. It's just, uh, you know, some, I watch Quadrophenia and I just want to be 21 and be driving down to, to Brighton on a scooter, you know, that's what it's like, isn't it? Uh, if, if a recent film I probably, I thought was, was decent was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a fantastic ending and, and some of the parts of it were sketchy, but I thought Wild Bill wasn't bad. I thought the main actor in it, I've forgotten his name, a guy from Nottingham, he, I thought he played the part fantastic. So Wild Bill was uh, a film that, I just expected the Cockney gangster film, and it wasn't. And I just thought that the main actor in that film uh, was really, really good. And I thought Dexter Fletcher, for uh, a directorial debut, did really well. And I think he got slated a little bit for it, but actually overall, for a British independent film, I think it tries to tell him that. It tries to give a real good message in there, and I think it's not a bad story in a decent film. No, I think, I think, I think, um, I think a lot of people... I think it's... Um... It gets it gets its fair share of praise, but yeah, you're right. There is, I think, there's a, too many people that were quick to condemn it as a British gangster film because of what they perceive British gangster films to be. As opposed, but I had, to, I had like that knuckle duster thing on the front, yeah. didn't it? So straight away, you think it's about fighting and about gangsters. Uh, is the the actor Charlie Creed Miles? Is that what you mean? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I couldn't believe he's from Nottingham because he plays like a South a South London, you know, street street fella who's been in and out of jail kind of thing. And I just thought his acting was fantastic. You know, I'd love to write something with him in because I just think he's a brilliant actor. But Dexter Fletcher's direct direct, and I thought it was great. You know, people are easy. It's easy to be a critic, Stuart, and I think people like it easy. You know, it's, it's very very easy to criticise. But, you know, if you go off and you make a film, and we just have for four years, and I've been, I'm being honest with you, I ran myself ragged to make this film. I mean, sleepless nights, pulling your hair out, you know, having moments where you want to give up a little bit, like Liverpool and Istanbul, I suppose. <laughs> that, that film absolutely ran me into the ground. I'll never get paid for the hours I put into that film. I literally was working non-stop on it for so long. So for people to criticise and be critics, just watch your film and, and you know, look at, at what people have done. And I, of course, at the end of the day, that's absolute crap and it's absolute crap. But I mean, you know, I think you shouldn't be so quick to criticise. And, and why I know that? Because that's what I was like. I was like that 15 years ago. I'd look at a film and go, that's a pile of crap. But now I look and I think, well, what people have done to pull that together and make it work. So I've heard Wild Bill getting a bit of stick, that film, and then you watch it. And I've watched it twice. It's a decent film. It's a real decent film, I think. When the guy, uh, Charlie, at the end, he, he, he knocks everybody out in the pub, it's a bit of him. It goes a bit American on me, but I think that the, the overall story and message in there and Dexter Fletcher's directorial debut, I think they're really excellent for a British independent film. And listen, one last thing I'd say on that, if that's not a great film, don't look at the hundreds and hundreds of films churned out by America every month or year or whatever, and they're just like spewing out piles of crap. So Wild Bill, for me, compared to them films, is a bloody great film. There you go. <laughs> and is there, is there anything you're working on you can tell us about now? Or is it all? Yeah, I'm working on a film about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it's all set on the south coast in Bournemouth on uh, the night Mrs. Thatcher dies. And there's a big party goes down, goes off down there and upsets all the locals. Fantastic. So where, where's, the, where's that in, in, in process? Are you, have you written the script? Or are you doing the script that? is written. We're on about the fifth draft there. We've got C Capital in and 
we're, we're money raising and stuff now. And we started out with a budget of 1.3 million. Uh, we sat down. We all went, that's a load of crap. This doesn't have to be made for this amount of money. Um, we're down to a budget of about £500,000 now. So we, once we've decided we've got a definite budget, which will probably be around that half a million mark, hopefully we'll start uh, bringing the rest of the money in and making it all happen and casting it. Because looking at directors now, and it's a film I want to get made and I'm very passionate about, but to be blunt with you, theatre is my bread and butter. And you can make a theatre something happen in theatre within six months. Yeah. Write your script. Pick your actors, pick your weeks, and go for it. But I'm, I was a bit weary with the film because it took four years. I was weary of pulling the wire up and saying, right, let's get going. But it started now, so I suppose once you start, that's it. You're not stopping, are you? No, no, no. Well, best of luck with that one, Nick. Okay. Sounds... Cheers, Stuart. Well, look, thanks very much for coming on, and uh, yeah. oh, good luck with the film. And um, and hopefully we can have you we can have you back on when uh, when the Maggie Thatcher film starts to take shape. Great stuff, mate. And listen, good luck with your own stuff as well. And, you know, don't give in and just keep going on your own stuff too. Indeed, I will. Thank you very much. Cheers, Stuart. Tell me. Tell Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.